Hannah Dunleavy's Outside the Box. Hello and welcome to February's Outside the Box. I am currently here with Jen. Hello. <laughs> okay, we'll do that again when you've swallowed. Hello. Previously I was actually here with Mick. It's very much outside the box of two halves. It is literally that. Okay, so a couple of things that are coming up that we should talk about. An advert has appeared on social media for the new series of Alan Partridge, mm. with a coming soon, but no date. Mm. The BBC generally put that stuff out within about a month, so I would say it's not far off. Please let it be soon. Yeah, that would be exciting. Mm. Also worth mentioning, it's currently Monday, so tomorrow, but that will be Tuesday because you'll be hearing this on Friday. Another series, I think it's series five of Shetland is arriving. Which I've never seen any of. Do you know what? I am of the opinion that there are way too many police drama, crime type things on the TV. Mm -hmm. But my mum is a big fan of Shetland. I have watched a few of them when I've been near my mum, with my Mm mum. And I actually think it's one of the better ones, to be honest. It's got a decent cast in it and it gets decent actors. Dougie Henshaw Mm -hmm. is the main guy, obviously set in the Shetland Islands. I mean, how much crime really goes on in the Shetland Islands? I can't imagine there's that much murder. I went on a date once with someone who was from the Shetland Islands. Really? Mm, and he just said everyone wears boiler suits. Okay. <laughs> maybe so that they can kill people yeah, and they're easy clean. Mm. Yeah. A couple of series ago, they had a plot in which one of the, or the female police officers was kidnapped and raped. And I thought they actually dealt with it really well. They actually mm-hmm. considered that she might have long-term trauma rather than just like, oh, that happened. Let's move on to another storyline. Fine now. So, yeah, Shetland is back. So if you like that sort of thing, hello, mum, (laughs) then, yes, that's good news for you. Maybe I'll watch a few of them and then we can talk about it in the next Outside the Box, in March's one. Mm. But the thing that we promised we would talk about in this episode is Series 3 of True Detective. Yeah. Which is, again, because we are recording on Monday, Jen and I have had the opportunity to see five There will be six by the time you hear this. But, okay, let's start with the history of True Detective. I watched series one. Yep, as did I, yep. I thought it was absolutely amazing. We've had this conversation before. I think if you didn't like the ending, you were probably watching it wrong because I thought who actually was the Yellow King was the least interesting plot in it, to be honest. I mean, we have had this conversation before and I didn't like the ending because it was a bit, do you know what it was like? Maybe I've said this exact same thing on this podcast before, I don't know. It was a bit like the last bit of It, the original It, where they find out that It is actually like a spider the size of a caravan, and you're like, you've jumped the shark, mate. Right. Series two, I didn't watch at all, because I like watching stuff like this. I generally give it three episodes, Mm. and then I start watching it, and I'll watch the first couple in a block. Now, I'd... seen some reviews that suggested it wasn't very good but some people whose opinions I actually respected said to me that series two was not good so I just didn't bother with it yeah I didn't really so I I know nothing about it so the third one I did exactly that I watched the first three on one evening and I watched the next two the following evening I didn't read any reviews at all just in case it turned out not to be good really wanted it to be good yeah 
So you've watched five. I've watched five. Mm. I mean, let's start with Mahershala Ali, who is the lead role in this. God, that dude is versatile, right? Yeah. Uh, This weekend, I also watched Green Book. And once again, I think that that's an example of him lifting the material that he's given Mm. by a really good performance, which, to be fair, was also could be said for series one of True Detective that it was lifted by some really great performances. I think it's got a number of key notes, threads or whatever that are very, very similar to series one if they've decided to reassess and go back. So I think a lot of the problem was the criticism of series one hinged on a couple of things. Mm -hmm. A, that the plot wasn't really resolved to people's liking. B, that there weren't female characters in it that had any great roles. To be honest, I wasn't bothered by either of those things. Yeah. The plot we've discussed, the female performances, True Detective's about the male psyche. I don't think you need big female roles in absolutely everything. If you only saw those Mm. women through how they interacted with those men, that's fine because it wasn't about those women. It was about those men and how they interacted with people. The point is make some stuff from about the female psyche as well, right? So, yeah, it doesn't all have to be... About, and I think it's perfectly fine for there to be a series that's entirely about the male yeah. psyche and not about. Yeah, like, no, I agree. Yeah, and don't try and shoehorn something into True yeah. Detective. Make a whole series of True Detective that's about women, if mm. that's what you want. Yeah, to do. exactly. Yeah. So they've obviously paired it back to what they knew they were good at. I mean, mm. and there are a couple of bits. Slight spoiler alert: if you haven't watched it, that are really similar, set in three time frames, almost exactly the same time frames that the first one was set in: nineteen eighty, nineteen ninety. 2015, which mm-hmm. is pretty much how the first one went. This is set in Arkansas, so it's also the South. Also, it's got a hinted at a rift that happened after 1990 that we don't know what it's about yet. That happened in the first one. Also, the original investigation was wrapped up when a suspect was shot, but then later they maybe revisit that it wasn't. That happened in the first series. So it is really, really familiar. On the other hand, the first series was very much a two-hander. This isn't. He's got a partner, a partner called Roland West, Mm -hmm. who is played by Stephen Dorff. But Dorff hasn't been given the stuff to do that Ali has at all, I don't think. No, do you think that's going to come out more? I don't know. I mean, you don't actually see him outside of the 1980 time frame till the third episode. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. So it definitely there's definitely less of him. Mm. So it's difficult to say whether Stephen Dorff's doing as good a job as Ali because, you know, he's not actually been given as much to do, to yeah. be fair. I actually prefer him out of the 1980. Once he came out of the 1980 time frame and you saw him in 1990 and you saw him in 2015, mm. I actually think, I'd say, Dorff is doing a really good job yeah. with what he's been given so far. But up until that point, it had pretty much been a one-man show. Mm. Equally... Scoot McNary, who is brilliant, is sitting very much on the sidelines at the moment as the dad of the children who are missing. Yeah, he's great. Really, really good. He is brilliant. I hope he's given a lot more to do. I think one of the key differences with this is it's about memory, isn't it? Mm. And he's suffering from a condition, but it's not really you assume it's like Alzheimer's. I wouldn't be surprised now if this knowing that they were dissatisfied with the ending of the first one, if this thing doesn't turn on its head, that there's a revelation and that he is, in fact, an unreliable narrator for this story. Yeah. All of that said, I am enjoying watching it. I think it's a lot of 
better than a lot of stuff that's on TV at the minute. I think what it really lacks from the first series is it lacks the sort of visual flair of it. There are a couple of things that happen in series one that are really striking images. If I think yeah. of series one now, you think of that first time that you see Reggie Ledoux, which is at the end of, like, I think the fourth episode, and he's got that mask on and you just see him oh, yeah, walking yeah. along and it's really spooky. Or yeah. the, the episode where the modern-day versions of the characters played by Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey meet for the first time and Matthew McConaughey leans in at the car window and it's really really ominous and then you just see the broken light on the back of the car mm. and you realise it's been broken for all those years and he's never fixed it. I can't think of one striking image yet that I've seen in this that tops any of those, to be honest. So I think visually it's not quite as exciting mm. to look at. What are you making of it? I'm not massively taken with it, to be honest. Like, it's watchable. And that's probably doing it a bit of a disservice. Like, I have watched every episode of it, so obviously it's, like, more than watchable. But I keep sort of thinking... I'm hoping this is going to pick up a bit. Do you think it's a bit of a slow burner? The first one was clearly a slow burner. And they do like to leave breadcrumbs, don't they? There's lots of that stuff where, you know, 2015 people know what's happened in the past, but we don't yet. And they Mm. say things like, and of course, when we know how it all played out, and you're like, it's just a series of hints. And I don't think television should drop that many hints to make you keep watching it. It, You should make you want to keep watching it because you want to keep watching it. Yeah. I think they're both great in it, Dorf and Ali. And he, you know, Mahershala Ali is a fantastic actor. I think the the relationship with his wife is very interesting and I'm wondering what's going to happen with that. Yeah. Because there's got to be more there, hasn't there? Yeah, they do have a weird relationship, don't they? Really weird relationship. But she's she's fairly unpleasant, actually. I mean, she's clearly really intelligent and really sort of frustrated in sort of her how she hasn't got on. And obviously, she sees a spoiler alert. She sees an opportunity in this story to make something out of it for herself. But I actually think that's quite interesting because it's certainly not how wives are played in stuff like that. No, and I wonder why I don't like her. Because it should be like, well, it it shouldn't be that big a deal. But I do do sort of think, you're fucking ruthless. Like, you know, you're you're willing to do, like, whatever to further your own agenda at the expense of your husband. I don't know if it's at the expense of him. I kind of think it is. She's kind of showing him up, isn't she? But how many times do you see the woman saying, oh, I wish you weren't less. I wish you wouldn't bring those stories home. Yeah. She's actually, for the first time ever, she's actively involved in it. Yeah, it feels a bit like how I feel like diagnosis murder should have been. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Steve Sloan. Is that the is that the copper? Who's What's Dick Van Dyke's character? He's basically... I, I, Jen, you've, you've already blown my mind with facts I know about diagnosis murder are number one. Dick Van Dyke is in it. Number two, Dick Van Dyke's son is in it. Okay, so in Diagnosis Murder, and this is like, this is a tangent and again, very highbrow for me. Um, oh. <laughs> Diagnosis Murder, Dick Van Dyke is the doctor and he's the dad of the copper. And they are father and son in real life and in Diagnosis Murder. And the doctor always solves all the crimes. And I think like, if I was, you know, Van Dyke Jr., I'd be like, back off, pal. This is my job. Get back to your doctoring. Anyway, we very much digress. I'm I'm going to say I'm enjoying it. 
I feel like it might end up being one of those things like Game of Thrones in which I kind of enjoy it while I'm watching it and then I forget about it when it's done. I think that the last... How many episodes are there of it? How many more have we got eight. to Eight. Go? I think there's eight. Okay, so I think the last few episodes are going to make or break it for me. Mm-hmm. Like, it's I'm either going to come out of it thinking it's the best thing I've ever seen or I'm just going to think, why did I do that? Yeah. Well, you did it because it'll probably still be better than most things on television. That's true. It's better than whatever is currently on ITV that we're not reviewing. Yeah. Yeah. Just a couple more things. We're going to talk Netflix after the break. There's a couple of things that we don't talk about that I have subsequently discovered that are on Netflix, so I thought I might mention. The first is a documentary series about Robert Kennedy. It's called Bobby Kennedy for President. And the second one is a remastered version of a documentary about Sam Cooke. Oh. Now, as you know, Sam Cooke and Bobby Kennedy, a bit obsessed with both of them. They are, to my mind, two of the most interesting people that lived in the 1960s. For some reason, Netflix skipped the first episode of Bobby Kennedy and showed me the second one, but I know enough about him mm. that I knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. But if it happens to anyone else, maybe you won't, and maybe you'll think, why aren't they explaining more stuff to me? So, yeah, maybe check that they are showing you the correct episode. But they are both interesting, flawed human beings, but also human beings who did a huge amount to improve the lives of people around them. I don't know very much about either of them. Uh, Sam Cooke was a singer. Yes, I know he's a singer. Who came out of uh, the gospel tradition and wanted to go into pop music, essentially, Mm -hmm. and actually lobbied quite hard to get a record label for black artists yeah. that was their own, that they had creative power over. Mm. Outside from the fact he was, like, completely brilliant, probably the best voice that has existed, I think. We're in a recording studio, so there's a man over there who's probably going to disagree with me. But probably the best, the best voice that's ever existed. And he was shot aged 33. Really? Same age as Jesus. By in a motel in some very odd circumstances. It's quite muddy Mm. how his life came to an end, which is quite sad because, you know me, I don't believe in God, but Sam Cooke's one of the things that would actually prove the existence of God if there was one to me. There was a play, I don't know, it was a couple of years ago now, I can't remember what it's called, One Night in Miami or something like that, which is about an alleged meeting that took place between Muhammad Ali... Malcolm X and Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke and Muhammad Ali were really, really good friends. Mm. In fact, there's a famous Ali fight. I think it might be one of the Joe Fraser fights where you can see him. He's being interviewed and he keeps shouting, where's Sam? And he's talking about (laughs) Sam Cooke. They had like a bromance back in the times that bromances weren't really a thing. Bobby Kennedy, the the most underrated of the Kennedys, I think, because obviously his brother got to be president and he didn't. Controversial statement, I think he would have made a better president Mm -hmm. than than JFK because, you know, as well as being the good parts of JFK, he didn't have many of the bad characteristics. He managed to keep his dick in his pants, for example. Well, actually, that's not true because he had like 11 kids, he and Ethel, so he... Clearly didn't keep his dick in his pants, but he clearly... Just kept it for the one. Yeah, and he had a proper way with people. Mm. And it's interesting, you'll see a lot... Going back to Green Book, Mm. something happens. Bobby Kennedy's involved in that. Mm -hmm. Because he was the Attorney General for a long time. Bobby Kennedy's involved in the film Loving. Bobby Kennedy is the linchpin to that. He was very much about civil rights, way more so than his brother, I would say. Anyway, they're both on there if you want to watch it. But Mick and I will be talking about... More Netflix after this. 
the end of January and early February, a load of stuff appeared on Netflix, a new comedy series and two documentaries that are essentially portraits of sociopaths. Where should we start with, Mick? Let's talk about conversations with a killer, the Ted Bundy tapes. Okay, so I wasn't going to watch this because the last time I watched anything serial killer related on... Netflix, I was really annoyed because I thought it was really gratuitous and I thought it was slightly Which celebratory. Was I think that was called Why People Kill or something, <laughs> you know, just something really What's bullshit. What's wrong with them? Yeah. But after you said that this is, that, that you'd seen this and it was interesting, I actually did watch it. But you start. Okay, so... Conversations with a Killer, which I'm just going to start calling the Ted Bundy Tapes, is a four-part series on Netflix directed by Joe Berlinger. And so like, I think pop culture has made it quite clear that we're all fascinated by serial killers. You know, there's TV, songs, films, etc. about them. And I, I fall into that. But I've got to say, I did approach the Ted Bundy tapes with a healthy amount of scepticism because of what Hannah's just said. And I don't want another glamorisation of a man who's killed more than 30 women with little thought to the the women's lives and what what their lives were and could have been. Yeah, or the, the problem I had with that thing was uh, graphic reconstructions of their death, which yeah. serve no purpose whatsoever. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, th- that isn't particularly in the Ted Bundy tapes, to be honest. There no, are, that was the other thing. The name Bundy tends to go hand in hand with words like handsome, yeah. charming, clever, as well as serial killer. So, yeah, I was very sceptical because I'm like, is it just going to be a glorification of one man managing to give the law the slip for so long? And there is an aspect of that, absolutely. Bundy's victims are somewhat predictably given about as much consideration as human beings in their own right as Ted Bundy gave them when they were alive. But what I found really interesting is this documentary is also keen to use Bundy's own words, which is a lot of taped interviews with him, to drive home that he is a black hole of a human being and a proper slippery fuck who gave the police the runaround. And it was this, and the fact that the police ever managed to solve any sort of crime before the internet that, that kept me watching. Because they just weren't talking or sharing information across state lines. And part of that was because they didn't have the technology. And part of that is because they just didn't sort of think that way. Well, that's not how police sort of forces work do they um in america is so disjointed dis- i mean you have like state police you have the fbi you have dea which is the drug enforcement agency they all sort of seem to work like independently, independently yeah. or they certainly did work independently of each other yeah and what i found out that was new information to me was that bundy had insider knowledge of what one former police officer terms the chaos and consistency from one jurisdiction to another and he just plays that. He utterly plays it. He escapes twice. Mm. So he's he's ready to face jury or trial. The first one's the judge. He doesn't want a jury. But he's ready to face trial as a killer. And they're, going for, they're gunning for the death penalty. He just fucking jumps out the courtroom window, legs it, disappears for six days, only comes back because he's cold. They don't find him. <laughs> the second escape... He's away for so long, he actually kills more women. Oh. Well, he goes on a full-on rampage at yeah. that point, doesn't he? Yeah. Can I ask a question? Of course. Because there seems to have been quite a lot of stuff that's 
out there about Ted Bundy at the moment. I think there's an anniversary or something that is... Possibly. There's a film. I think Emil Hirsch plays him in the film. No, Zac Efron. I was about to say, is this the thing with Zac Efron? No, this isn't. This is a documentary. So Bundy's in it as Bundy because he Uh absolutely is an attention whore. He plays to the cameras. He thinks he's so clever. During this second trial where he defends himself because he thinks he's clever enough to defend himself, he proposes... To the one of the, the, the women's the character witnesses for him on the stand, she says yes. They have a child while he's in prison on death Oops. row. So, yeah, there is a film about Bundy called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile. It's waiting on a UK release date. It was just shown at Sundance. But that is also by Berlinger, and it stars Zac Efron as the mass-murdering fuckhead. I don't know. Do we want to keep giving him space? Do we want to keep feeding the fire that these deeds lead to infamy. Well, that's interesting because the thing that I found most just staggering watching this is the sheer volume of footage and interviews that there are with him. And the American legal system works very differently than ours does. I'm going to give you an example. When the Soham murders happened and I was working on on that story because I lived locally, I worked for the local paper, a friend of mine covered um, the case at the High Court And we had a conversation afterwards and he said one of the most interesting or startling things was hearing in Huntley's voice because he'd been this thing that had existed and we'd seen photographs and actually some other colleagues of mine had met Ian Huntley while he was still a suspect or when he was the first eyewitness. But do you know what he sounds like? Do you know what the Yorkshire Ripper sounds like? No. 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 And... That, I think, has fed into this idea that Bundy was like handsome because there's no two ways about it. The facade he puts out is charismatic. And when he is allowed to be interviewed in prison, when the court case is allowed to be shown on television and he's allowed to defend himself, they've allowed him to put that charismatic into the public domain. He absolutely plays Hamlet with it. He really does. And it makes you think, maybe we do it right because it's a lot less easy to to fall under the spell of someone when they're not on your fucking telly morning, noon and night, yeah, and that really, putting their point of view across. It's a really interesting bit where they've got the open court so people can, like, Joe Public can come in and watch. The amount of young women who are drawn to watching yeah. him and they're like, oh, I'm a bit scared, but I can't look away. Why is that allowed to happen? Because if you look at a photograph of him, I saw someone do a brilliant thread on Twitter <laughs> when they were like, if you thought Ted Bundy was hot in the 70s, look what these guys look like. I mean, it, it missed out Jeff Bridges, so I don't quite know what they were talking about. Uh, <laughs> Jeff Bridges in the 1970s looked the best any man has ever looked. But anyway, I think part of it is exactly that because, you know, you could look at... I mean, without wanting to go down a road in which we objectify people, you can look at people who aren't what you would say is necessarily attractive, right, in a mugshot. And then the minute they start smiling, you're like, they are so handsome. Yeah, of course. Andre 3000 is a great example of this. Just smiling. It's just fucking megawatt. And of course, that's what happens when killers stop being a mugshot and start being this smiley, happy, friendly yeah. face. And it is also that thing of he doesn't look what we are conditioned to think a sociopath or a, yeah. a psychopath would look like or what a serial killer would look like. So he's not super handsome. He's bang average, but he is, like you say, allowed to charm. And so you see him smiling and laughing and having fun. You see his personality come across. The judge, the judge that put oh him down... Oh, my God, I hate that man. The oh, judge that put him down thing. says to him in there, it's a shame that I saw you here because you're obviously a clever and intelligent man... And then he said something like, good luck, brother. He said, I hold you no ill will. 
You take care of yourself, I mean that. Which is a weird thing to say to someone who's just got the death penalty. Take care of yourself. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I hold you no ill will. really weird. But in your Just point, women, aren't they, though, Joan? Yeah. Well, some of them were actually children. Or well, one of them one was certainly was a child. I don't know, if, in answer to your question, whether watching this makes you part of the problem, though, to mm. be honest. I definitely had mixed feelings. I thought there was some interesting stuff, and I'd, I'd have liked to see more about how the police dealt with that kind of situation rather than a focus on so many other t- stories they could have told. Apart from the copper that, that said, oh, yeah, we got a woman in because we thought it'd be good to have a woman's perspective. You know, one woman in. How, how do you feel about being murdered? Is it bad? Jen, on a scale of one to ten, if you were going to be murdered, yes or no? Oh, it's not ideal, is it? <laughs> Should we move on to the other portrait of a sociopath, which is the Fire Festival documentary? Sweet baby Jesus. Oh, G. That's literally all I've written down <laughs> in my notes. O-M-G. Okay, so you may or may not already know the story of the Fire Festival, which was a festival created by American entrepreneur Billy McFarlane and Jar Rule, which descended almost immediately into absolute chaos and ended looking like Houston after it had been hit by a hurricane. I mean, it really became the festival that Instagram deserves perhaps is the only way to say it it was about style over substance it was about how a cod man basically persuaded everyone that he could create the best festival ever kind of shit show that makes the running of brexit look as smooth as the bonnet of a porsche yeah it's populated by a huge number of really unsympathetic characters be they the people who worked for him the man who was going to suck someone off for evian which will stay in my mind forever be that you know the you pe- some of the a- people who bought tickets who turned out to be people who possibly deserve to lose a bit of money and learn a lesson I, I i don't know what to say about it really mickey thoughts i was just going to say can you imagine when you're ever you're in the pits of despair and leave it you know and i hope that doesn't happen to you but i think we can all take comfort by going at least i've never nearly sucked someone off for water yeah <laughs> It's an absolute bin fire. And I sat there and you'd warned me that it would give me a bellyache and it did, but I couldn't stop watching. These people are appalling and the people falling for it are just, what is wrong with them? Just going along with it. There were like two people, I was going to say characters, but these are real life humans. But they feel like characters. (laughs) Okay, so there's probably about half a dozen people that I actually felt sorry for by the end of it. All of them were tangentially involved in this. They were basically subcontractors, weren't they, rather than people involved on a high level. And you do say, well, why would someone get involved in a festival that's never been run before, that's got all these big claims? But it's sold out. Yeah, It's sold out before they'd even done a line-up or anything. And the the absolute chutzpah and self-belief in these guys, this arrogance. Well, that's the thing. I think it teaches you a really valuable lesson that people need to be able to differentiate in life between deserved confidence and just balls out arrogance. You know the sort of people that say, I don't care how you get it done, just get it done. Those people, more often than not, cunts. <laughs> that's exactly the people who are involved in this. There's one guy who's saying there are 300 people come to this festival that we currently have. I mean, obviously, a lot more going to the festival, but there are at least 300 people that have paid for villas, in inverted commas, and we have nowhere to put them. We don't have a tent. We have nowhere. And he just gets back. I'm sure you'll find something. And he's like, no, no, there are no houses. And then what he gets back is, well, at least they'll still have your crazy smiles and yoga moves, exclamation mark, smiley face. Lord. 
was this man just a con artist? Did he know what he was doing? Or was it just like, didn't care, you know? A bit of both, I think. I think a bit of both. I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's possible to defame him. I don't know. I'd imagine there was quite a lot of other stuff going on, perhaps. Some confidence that came from artificial stimulants seems uh, likely. Yeah, I... Possibly he was just a flash shit who got out of his depth. But now, if you look at his behaviour since, I think he's stepped over a line and now is full on con man. Let's just say, Jen, he's the kind of man who managed to make me feel momentarily sorry for a man who has called himself (laughs) Madavid. I never thought that that was possible. Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know, how are you? Maybe it's a silent <laughs> Because I've I said this to you when you were both watching it. I said, just want to say there's a man in it called David. I'm yeah. now called Michaela. <laughs> just like, what the fuck? Yeah. But yeah, I, he had my sympathy. It went away again because he's clearly a wanker. But, but I, I genuinely cannot, cannot put into words. You just have to watch it. You just have to watch this. And I suppose the funny thing is, it's an indication of the arrogance that they had of how much stuff they filmed themselves doing that they thought it would end up in the, hey, this is how to build a successful festival documentary, as opposed to what the fuck happened there then. I had to start a bin fire. Finally, I just want to mention, because it is hidden. Netflix, you get on my tits. You advertise the Ted Bundy tapes to me relentlessly at the top of the page, even though I've actually watched them. Your section (laughs) that says popular now and trending are exactly the same. The the section underneath that is one that says things you have already watched in case you want to watch them again. And yet hidden in amongst all of this that I wouldn't know if I hadn't read a review by Alan Sepperwall is Russian Doll which is a dramedy written by Natasha Leone. Do you know her? Who was in the American Pie films, went off the rails really badly, developed a drug habit, then nearly died on several occasions and then kind of had a comeback in Orange is the New Black. Who is she in Orange is the New Black? She is Nikki. Oh, I love Nikki. Yeah, well then you're going to love this. She's kind of a... Kind of, um, she looks a certain crazy hair. She's great. She has a certain look that I could understand maybe why you wouldn't necessarily cast her in some roles. She's done that thing where she's got fed up and written something herself. Oh. Part produced by Amy Poehler. Oh, and it is a story of a woman um, who lives in the kind of New York loft environment that you would normally, I would normally find absolutely desperately irritating. But this is where the casting of Leon is absolutely perfect who on the night of her 36th birthday is hit by a car and dies and then wakes up back at the start of her birthday in the Groundhog's Day style and has to try and uncover why she keeps dying but not actually dying and time keeps resetting. I don't know what it would be without her because she is amazing. But actually, it's, it is good. It's got some nice little mysteries. It's, it's very much a Netflix thing. It's got a diverse cast, got a lot of women, got a lot of people of colour, it's got a lot of uh, gay characters in it. It's got a little cliffhanger at the end of everything, but these are sometimes quite small, like a disappearing fish that will make you go, oh, there's a little mystery, what's happened there? I barreled through this over a weekend. I think it's got it's got a couple of revelations in it that I actually spotted coming, but it's the sort of thing that when you spot them coming, when it actually does happen, you feel rewarded rather than you feel cheated. Okay. It's that sort of thing where it makes you feel, oh, if you got that, you're a bit smart, but if not, you can still be shocked. It's denouement, it's clever, it's interesting. I liked it a lot. Is it coming back? 
I don't think so. I think it's going to be self-contained. I mean, it possibly could, but it seems to me like it is a limited series. It will be self-contained. Yeah. They tend to build them as limited series. So Maniac, they called a limited series of what we would have just called a series at one point. Yeah. Um, But I'm all for a few more of those. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll definitely give that a watch. It sounds great. Russian Doll. Job done. Hannah Dunleavy's Outside the Box.